welcome to church this morning, and especially those of you that are tuning in online, a warm welcome to you as well. I am trying my best to rejoice with those who rejoice. We now have four provinces in our country that don't have to wear masks. I'm not coveting, coveting at all. I'd be lying if I said that. I'm longing for the day that we can get rid of those. But until then, we will continue to rejoice in the Lord. So you've got your Bibles. They're open to John chapter 14. Lord willing, I'm going to finish off this chapter today. We started it last week. And last week I titled my sermon, Jesus Loved and Obeyed God so that we can love and obey Him. If you remember last week as well, because I think most of you were here last week, um, although some, a lot of our young adults weren't, that uh, welcome back to you. Last week I spoke about a real crisis of faith that I had when I went ziplining back about five or six years ago because I had been told that there was a weight limit of 250 pounds only to discover that the actual harness was rated for 1,500 pounds. And so I had tried most of, well, at least four runs in my own strength to try and do this. And so now we come and we're going to turn our attention to this passage. And last week we talked about the promises that Jesus gave to his disciples when he answered, as Paul mentioned, questions from Thomas, questions from Philip, and questions from now Judas, who is not Iscariot. Remember last week in verses 22 to 24, Jesus promised his eternal presence with the disciples, that he would be with them and his father and he would come and take up residence with them. Then in verses 25, 26, Jesus promised his blessed truth and he would teach them and guide them via the gift of the helper, the Holy Spirit. We learned that even though Jesus is leaving physically, he was the road and he was on the road he would travel to allow us to know his presence with him eternally and everywhere we go. Now today I want to focus on verses 27 to 31 when Jesus promises his disciples the gospel. That's what he's making a promise if you noticed in verses 27 to 31. But it's not just a gospel, it's the gospel and it will be the source of peace for them. It will be a source of mission for them and the means by which the whole world can hear and be invited to believe in Jesus. And by the way, that's the ultimate answer of Jesus to Judas, who is not Iscariot. But before we get into all of that, I want to ask you how you're doing with life. Now, last week I spent a lot of time trying to associate my struggle with ziplining and my lack of faith and how I felt I had to hang on and I had to muster up enough energy and strength and then I found out, four runs into it, that I had my understanding, my, all of that was enhanced and, 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 and explained, and therefore, all of this robbing of joy, this robbing of my strength as I was physically getting exhausted, all of this fear, but worse, as I talked to about it last week, I think the worst part of me being afraid when I was trying to zip line was acting like I wasn't afraid. It meant I had to pretend. I was trying to put on a good face for my daughter and my son. I was trying to put on a good face for Jeff and Grace. I wanted to act tough like I was a real man, not afraid of anything. In fact, I was petrified. I really was worried that I was going to fall, that the line wouldn't hold or the harness would break. 
And so I tried to pretend, I tried to act, I tried and put forth this version of me that wasn't true. In other words, I lacked peace. I wasn't at peace. And I think every one of you can relate to this. I think every one of you, either right now, or you have this week, or you have this month, or you have this year, have struggled with a lack of peace. You're not sure about your present. Some of you here are online or maybe running from your past. Some of you, especially those of you that are younger, you're maybe afraid of the future. Quite frankly, that could be some of us as older folks as well. We live in a world in July of 2021 that is filled with depression. We struggle with anxiety. There's a sense by we're feeling tense all the time. You realize, can you align with that? Do you know what I'm talking about? And yet, have we ever lived in an age where we pretend more? Pretend like we've got it all together. So what do we do in helping us to pretend? We turn the music up. We keep ourselves busy. Just occupy every moment and thought of every day. Or worse yet, we try the same stuff over and over again thinking this time it will be different. Which is ironic because the world itself says that's the very definition of insanity, isn't it? But one of the great examples of this struggle is maybe not so much me with my zip lining, but I wanted to set this up in the idea that we're starting in verses 27 and onward today, and maybe we need to look, and you know, it's very common now to have Christmas in July, so I thought maybe I could visit Christmas in July as we think about Henry Longfellow, who wrote the famous Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day in 1863, Henry Longfellow was inspired to write the poem that we now know as this Christmas carol. It was indeed a testament of the power of the gospel and the peace it can bring, like Jesus talks about in John chapter 14. But you have to realize, like many, if not most of the songs we sing, including many of the hymns that you sang today and the praise songs, they all have a story. Longfellow's life from 1861 to 1863 was not an easy one. The Civil War in America was raging. Longfellow was known as a strong proponent of freedom and getting rid of abolishing slavery. And it came, of course, with a certain amount of pressure. But probably what you don't know is that in 1861, Longfellow lost his wife of 18 years. She was actually sealing some letters, and actually one of the flames tipped over, caught her and her home on fire, and she was horribly burned to death. Longfellow himself actually received many, many burns as he tried to save his dear wife. And in fact, the story is told that he grew out this massive beard and never shaved as an attempt to cover all the scars on his face. He went into a massive depression and he wrote poems about his dear wife, his dear dead wife. One of the lines of one of those poems was this, in the long sleepless watches of the night, a gentle face the face of one long dead, looks at me from the wall, where round her head the night lamp casts a halo of pale light. This was a man in turmoil, grieving, struggling. And as if to make matters worse, his son Charlie snuck off to join the war with Washington. 
driven by God's word for the equality of men and for justice. And Charles went to fight the fight that his father didn't want him to go to for fear of losing the one connection he had to his dear Francis. Then to top it off, Charlie got a fever. Henry went and retrieved his son to nurse him back to health, only for Charlie to sneak off again and join the war. And then in December of 1863, his son Charlie was shot and had his spine nicked. Longfellow again went to retrieve his son to try and care for him, and in doing so, as they left, he heard the bells in the church tower ring as Christmas fast approached. And from this crisis of faith, Longfellow turned to the Word of God. In fact, it says in his journal that he would read it for up to 12 hours a day, trying to find the meaning of life and what God was teaching him. And from this, he wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, good with to men. And then I thought, how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And here's verses you don't see many times in our modern hymn. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong. And mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail when peace on earth, goodwill to men. Henry Longfellow was a living example of what I tried to illustrate with my ziplining story of what it means to be gripped by John chapter 14, verses 27 to 31. We're all looking for peace. Young people, let me tell you, your entire culture, all your peers, everybody, older folks, all your neighbors, all your coworkers, everybody is looking for peace. Everybody is. We're all looking for peace. We're all looking for assurance. We're all looking for hope. And Jesus is going to deal with the truth behind all the questions of Thomas and Philip and Judas. Jesus now is going to express the very natural result of loving and trusting. Are you ready for this? The word of himself. It really doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. Jesus obeyed and loved God so that you and I can do the same. Look at verse 27 again, when says, Jesus says to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now notice this, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I could spend the rest of the morning on this one verse. In fact, 
I could be like all these guys that I've admired that preached sermon after sermon after sermon on one verse and not move on until you get this verse. Can you imagine how many of you, if you read this verse every day this week, what would change about your attitude and your perspective? What would change about your priorities? It's almost as if Jesus is actually giving his last will and testament. The old commentator Matthew Henry, I love how he puts this, he says, When Jesus was about to leave the world, he made his will. And here's what it was. He left his soul to his father. He left his body to Joseph to be decently interned. His clothes fell to the soldiers that gambled for it at the foot of the cross. His mother he left to the care of John. So what would he leave his poor disciples? Silver and gold have I none. But he left them what was infinitely better, his peace. Peace. Peace that Jesus leaves with us. So that must mean it's a peace that he must have had. He says, I'm going to leave you my peace. Now think about Jesus' life in those three and a half years. You remember when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee in one of three occasions that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us when there's a storm? But one of my favorites is when there's all this storm and they're all suffering and they're fearful they're going to die and Jesus is asleep down at the back end of the boat. And you remember what the disciples say? Master, awake, don't you care that we're dying? Now, before we're too hard on them, when was the last time you honestly felt or verbalized something like that to God? Jesus, don't you care that I'm going through this? Don't you care about my singleness? Don't you care about my physical problems? Don't you care about my financial issues? Don't you care about my marriage? Don't you care about my kids? Don't you care about my parents? Don't you care about my church? Don't you care about my city? Don't you care about the culture? peace. And yet, remember when Jesus awakens, he says, don't, don't you know that I'm here with you? And then he says this, O ye of little faith. And then he says, so that you'll know who I am. Remember what he says? Peace, be still. In the Greek, Stephen, I love this one because, and actually in the Greek, it's, it's, it's the idea of an owner addressing a dog or a pet. Basically, he looks at nature and he says, heal enough. And all of nature is just quiet. And we know that this must have amazed because the disciples feared God and worshiped him. Remember, because it says, even the wind and the waves obey him. This is what he's doing. But then he says, it's not just my peace that I leave with you. It's a peace that he gives to us. And it's not a worldly peace. It's a peace in the storm. It's a peace that an unloving world can't take or offer. It's a peace that knows the presence of Christ even though we can't see him. It's a peace that overcomes Satan. It's a peace that leads to and increases faith because it's the peace of God and it's peace with God. See, I think we confuse that. When you become a Christian, when you say, I'm going to trust Jesus, I'm going to repent and confess that I can't, but he can, then the Bible says you now have the peace of God. Paul writes about it in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, are you rejoicing in the glory of God? Or only rejoicing when life's circumstances go your way? I've been a bit tongue-in-cheek, haven't I, about masks? But the truth is, often I let this ruin my day. I let a stoplight agitate me. I let criticism destroy me. And yet, I would be the first one to say... That the glory of God is all I want. Really? Is that true? Do you realize how much like the disciples we are? How easily distracted, how easily discouraged, how easily depressed, how easily um, like, like the dog in, in, in that movie, Up, right, squirrel? You just, you just do it. You just get distracted so easily. But notice that Jesus ends the way he started in verse 27. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. By the way, that's how John 14 started. Let not your hearts be troubled. By the way, that's after he said, I'm leaving you. Judas will betray me and you guys will all abandon me. Then he says, let not your heart be troubled. Then he answers questions from Thomas and Philip and Judas. And then he brings it all back together and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And then he adds, neither let them be afraid. Remember I told you when I was on that zip line and I was so afraid I had a troubled, fearful heart. But once I understood the plan, once I understood what was available to me, that I was actually wrapped up in a harness that could handle five over five times my weight, then all the fear left. Then I relaxed, I was at peace. And Jesus now tells his disciples, listen, once you understand that I'm going to be with you and never leave you, I'm going to send you my spirit, and the spirit is going to give you the truth of the word of God, and you will always have this gospel, and this gospel will have power. Now you've got a plan and a mission and power, then we can have peace and calm and rest. But more than that, can I ask you, what's the opposite of fear? If it isn't courage. Paul is preaching through the book of Joshua whenever we give him the pulpit. And if you notice, the one refrain that is most common to the book of Joshua is do not be afraid. But then he says, but be of good courage. So let me ask you, Calvary Baptist Church, in 2021, when we're still renting a building and we're trying to plant churches and we're doing it in the midst of a pandemic and money is tight and taxes are up and inflation is up and it seems like the gospel is on, on retreat and the culture's turning with us, wouldn't it be easy for us to say, I'm afraid? <laughs> and yet God says, don't be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled. Be not afraid. Be courageous. Can I ask you, church? Is there at least one or two Caleb's here? Do you remember that? When Israel is about to enter the promised land, and the only two guys that survived 40 years of wilderness are two men, Joshua and Caleb. 
And Paul's going to get to this. And Caleb is going to go to Joshua and he's going to say, give me this mountain. And he's probably in his 70s when he asks that. So can I ask you, Calvary Baptist Church, from the youngest of you to the oldest, would you join me in praying every single day? God, give us this rock. Give us this rock. Save people in this city. Raise up a generation of young men and women that want to serve God and give their lives to God, no matter what it costs. Because when you have this understanding of the presence of the Lord and the power and the trustworthiness of the word of the Lord and the power of the gospel, because notice Jesus, John is going to say in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that David and, and others are preaching through that perfect love casts out fear. Figuratively, I said to you last week that I was in the midst of a trial and fear on those zip lines. I felt like that fear was real. But what do you think Henry Longfellow felt when he buried his wife and was told that his son was shot? And I believe you and I struggle with a lack of peace, with the formidable foe that is fear. It seems like the promised presence of Jesus and the truth of the Word of God is going to pull off what we're looking for. And so what happens? We doubt. We get confused. We don't understand. Just like the disciples in this passage, even in the church, we say faulty things. And young people, forgive us when we say this. I hear too many adults, I hear too many parents and grandparents say, oh, Jesus or God will never give you anything you can't handle. That's not true. In fact, for the record, I pray every day that God will give you a lot more than you can handle. Because then you'll be desperate. Then you'll need him. If God will only ever give you what you can handle, then let me ask you this, why do you need God? God is going to give you something every day that you can't handle. Richard Phillips says, being a Christian does not preserve us from the storms and trials of this world. Instead, Christ will himself often send us into the storms, just as he was now leading the disciples into the place of his arrest. When he says, rise, let's go, they're not going to go for a walk in the garden where he walks with me and he talks with me. No, they're going to go in there. They're going to fall asleep. And when they wake up, Judas is going to appear with a militia and arrest Jesus and take him away. And they're going to scatter like flies. Perhaps the most vivid illustration of this principle, Philip says, was when Jesus sent the disciples, he sent them into the windswept Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter 4. And he rebuked the wind, though, and said, Peace be still. And the winds and the waves obeyed his sovereign voice. This was the same Jesus who was now preparing his disciples for the great storm surrounding his arrest and crucifixion. When he says, Let not your hearts be troubled and be not afraid, he realizes that one rotation of the sun, one calendar day, and he would be hanging naked on a cross. A peaceful state of mind is not something that the disciples were to achieve by their own will or their own devices. Remember I said, I figured if this, this harness breaks or this line breaks, I will hang on to this apparatus and I will hang here till someone rescues me. 
And every one of you, when I say that, say, Steve, boy, you are one foolish human being. Because the truth of the matter, at 200 and pounds, if that broke and I had to hang there, I'd be lucky to hang there for 60 seconds, and then it was all over. I was at a playground not too long ago with my grandkids, and they had one of those little mini zip lines, and I thought I would show off to Theo, and I held that zip line, put my legs up, and all of a sudden, every part of me went, you're not as young as you used to be. So Jesus promises in verse 27 to leave his peace with us and to give his peace to us. What what does that mean? Look at it. It's a peace that will overcome an unloving world. Calvary Baptist, I get it. Many people that are in this city do not want us to celebrate a sovereign God. And often will treat us unlovingly. And yet, God says when you trust his presence and you trust his word, you will have a gentleness and an assurance that will overcome an unloving world. Because you won't need your affirmation from the world. You already have it in Christ. It's a peace that will find rest even though we can't physically see Jesus because we know he's with us. It's a peace that he's leaving us his infallible word that you can trust the Bible even in 2021. It's a peace that makes it possible for us to talk to God directly. It's a peace that assures us that Jesus Christ right now, today, even as I preach to you and you listen to me and all the other things that are competing for your mind and heart, Jesus Christ gladly, delightfully intercedes for us. He sends us his Holy Spirit to empower us. And by the way, I think the thing we struggle with the most in this church is that he is patient with the process. See, I don't think not one of you here believes you've arrived spiritually. I think, though, we're all tempted to act like we are doing well when secretly we're not. And we're afraid to be honest and say, I'm struggling. But Jesus is defending me. And I don't have to be afraid. It's a peace that's not only found by loving, sorry, it's a peace that's only found by loving and trusting and obeying Jesus. And by the way, that's why he says what he does in verse 28. Look at it. You have heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Why? Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, what does this mean? Jesus, of course, is not saying that he's lesser than God the Father. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that, right? We knew that he was equal with God. Even though he was equal with God, he didn't think that being incarnate was something he had to reject or being God, he had to cling to it. No, he made himself of no reputation, took on himself the form of humanity. Jesus submits himself. What this means is Jesus is reminding his disciples, just as I have submitted myself to God's will... I'm now going to tell you, you need to joyfully submit yourself to my will, and that is good. The hardest thing every one of you is going to do this this week, today, and in your lifetime, between now and your death, is this, to truly believe that you can rest in God's will for you, 
versus exerting all the effort to figure out and make your life something by your design. If you do that, here's what you're going to do. You're going to end up where Solomon was at. It was all for nothing. But if you trust God with your life and everything about your life, then you'll be able to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Which, by the way, Jesus is going to say hours from here. This is why Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. When Paul says, God, Jesus Christ understood the will of God, that he was here to defeat all the enemies of God, Satan, sin, death, all of it. And when he conquers it all, he would lay it at the feet of his father. I don't know about you, but this is what makes heaven heaven. It's not golden streets. It's, it's not big palaces. If you want to know the truth, I'm going to tip my, this mansion over a hilltop nonsense. To me, that degrades heaven. No, what makes heaven marvelous is we are there and there is no more sin and no more sorrow and no more tears and no more fear. Because you know why? You're going to look up with your two eyes and you're going to go, there's Jesus. Now, you're going to spend this part of your life practicing for that. That's what this passage calls us to. But I want you to notice something else about this as I move on very quickly. I want you to notice how many times in verses 22 to 31, Jesus says, my father. In fact, in verses 27 to 31, in the last five verses, Jesus says, my father, four times. And if you take time, you'll notice that in just chapter 14 alone, he will use the expression, my father, 22 times. Which, by the way, is an aside, next time you pray, why don't you practice saying, my father, and see how that changes your thought process on prayer. So often we say, God and Lord, wonderful titles. But how much do you practice and rehearse to yourself that you're in a living relationship, that you're a son of God, a daughter of God. We are the family of God. And we can go to almighty God, king of kings and lord of lords, and he's my father. I'll be 50 years old in January. It shocks me to say it. I'll be a half a century old. Because I feel about as old as Junior Mint there. By the way, that's my nickname for Matthew Rogers. My mom and dad will show up on Wednesday. I haven't seen my mom and dad in over two years. And when my dad shows up, I will hug him. And I'll be able to say, hey, dad. And that'll be wonderful. Because he's my father. How many of you this week will live out your Christianity and live out your marriages and live out dating and live out finishing school or starting it, live out jobs, live out neighborhood, live out all of it and realize I'm watched over and protected by my father? Or yet, Will you spend a lot of this week thinking, where's God? How do I talk to God? How do I please 
God? How do I make God hear me? When all you have to do is cry out, my Father. Jesus closes out this chapter the way he began it. And this time it's sandwiched between a promise and an admonition. He says, let not your heart be troubled. And then don't be afraid. But notice, he says, I am with you. You know, in Revelation, it's going to say that Jesus is the first, the middle, and the last. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, friends, Jesus, not our fears, is ultimate. In the gospel, his right hand isn't just with us, it holds us. It makes all things new. He's going to wipe all tears from our eyes. That's why I love what he says in verse 29. And now I have told you before that it takes place, so that when it does, that you may believe. I will no longer talk with you, verse 30, for the ruler of this world is coming. And then watch, people just throw this away. And then he says, he has no claim on me. He's, he's, he, can you feel it? He's almost dismissive. Satan is coming. I don't care. He has no claims on me. This is the basis of your do not be afraid. And don't you notice what, he's, what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, Judas is coming for me. He doesn't say, the Romans are coming for me. He doesn't say, the Pharisees are coming for me. No, he says, the devil. And by the way, his coming is actually his undoing. Now we're all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Because Satan who thinks, I win now. Which, by the way, should show us all the blindness of sin and pride. Satan knows better than think that he could defeat God, and yet he's so wrapped up in his pride, so blinded by his sin, that he actually thinks he might pull this off. And actually what he does is accomplish the mission and plan of God. The message of the cross will finally enable the world to know and believe in Jesus. And thus, Judas's question is answered. How is it that we know but the world doesn't? Well, Judas, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to conquer sin, death, and Satan. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father. I'm going to send you out on a mission. And guess what? Now you can know when you tell people about me, people will respond. Which Calvary Baptist is why we can't think only about protecting this. we got to go attack that city with the gospel and the love of Jesus. Jesus actually states the mission of the church. It's the evangelistic call of every professing Christian. Look at verse 31. I do what the Father commanded me. I'm doing it. <laughs> I love it. You see, the cross and the resurrection and the ascension is the way that the world can know that Jesus loves the Father. It's the way we can show them that we love Jesus. And so Matthew 28 is unlocked here. Luke chapter 24 is unlocked here. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And then Jesus basically says, rise, let's go from here. It's almost like, all right, boys, let's go play. Let's go get this thing done. Isn't that the opposite of fear and hesitancy? Again, I love this. Jesus, though, was going to go first. Jesus will make it all possible. And that's why we love Jesus, because it's never about us. It's always been for us, but it's eternally for God's glory. Now, step back. 
step back and think about what Jesus has said. He said that he will be with us. He said he will guide us. Now he's commissioning us. Sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Could you please repeat it? All right, Siri. There you go. I want you to know that God is with us. God has given us his word. And God has given us a plan. There you go. Now Mr. Jobs or Cook or whoever the heck his name is at Apple knows the gospel. <laughs> Dude, that's wild. So how do I clue this up after that? Very quickly, number one, according to John chapter 14, verses 22 to 31, you and I can trust and be comforted by the presence of God. We are not alone. God loves us. Remember, I've asked you many times, tell me your view of God, and I'll tell you what your relationship with God looks like. You see, I think that we like this stuff about God. But do we actually believe this passage enough to apply it to our lives? Jesus is with us night and day, moment by moment. You're never hidden from him. He is never impatient with you. I will give you a bit of homework this week. Read Psalm 139. But read it over and over again. I learned something amazing this week. You've heard it in many, many sermons and devotionals because David's done it, Curtis has done it, Matthew's done it, Adam's done it, Steve's done it, I've done it. Many of you are doing it. We've all read this book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. So our lives have been rocked by Matthew 11, 28 to 30, where Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly. But what got me this past couple of weeks is that God, the Father, talks this way in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses says, I want to see God. And Yahweh says, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving on wrongdoing, forgiving rebellion, forgiving sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, what jumps out at you? All the positive or all the negative? Because each of us will gravitate to one or the other. But I like what's in the middle. God says, I am so merciful and gracious. I do that to a thousand generations. And when I do have to deal with your sin, I deal with it in you and your grandkids and your kids. Look at the disproportionate response. And yet how often do we think God's always angry with me? Or God needs to get even with me. Or God needs to punish me. The disposition of God's heart is one to delight, to draw near to you and you to draw near to him. God is compassionate and gracious. He is with us. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who was in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So do you trust him? Secondly, you can trust and obey the word of God. Now you might think, well, thanks, Captain Obvious. But do you? Because Jesus said those who love him and trust his word are the ones that will know his presence and know how to live out the mission. Richard Phillips says, 
Some Christians seek to please God rather than the world, but other Christians, nominal Christians, even in their profession of faith, if their profession of faith is biblical, will live as if, as if Jesus were not alive or present. Their concern is what they can get from their faith rather than the giving of themselves through their faith. Their delight is found in the things of this world, the will of which they find it hard to refuse. Or they read the Bible, they do so out of cold duty, learning facts but not hearing the voice of Christ. And so on it goes with prayer and worship and other Christian duties. All is Arctic frost. Yet Jonathan Edwards, this past week is his anniversary on July the 8th of 1741, when he preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, said this, It does not matter how religious a man or woman is or how many prayers he or she makes. Until he or she believes in Christ, God is not obligated in any way to protect or hear him or her. So let's not act like we are not all tempted by the world around us. The struggle for us is all real, isn't it? Which is why you need to read your Bibles. I love this, remember? Moses said, I can't speak. Job said, I have no peace. David said, I am a worm. Elijah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Sorry, Isaiah. Elijah said, I've had enough, Lord. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And in our inadequacy, God said, and I can use all of you. And you may be currently afraid, discouraged, depressed, cynical, weary and well-doing. You might think this evangelism stuff and this church planting stuff and this thinking outside of ourselves is, is not possible. But I want you to know, God is still saving souls. God is still calling preachers. God is still sending missionaries. God is still building his church. He is still changing lives and he still loves his own. So grace means that your little story, your little tiny individual story, as Paul Tripp said, has been embedded into the grand eternal story of redemption. And so you can trust and be committed to the mission of God. This is God's plan. And I leave you with this prayer by Scotty Smith as our team comes to sing us out today. Because I think this prayer catches the whole passage. Psalm 42, 11, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Where's your peace? David is praying. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now listen to Scotty Smith. He says, Lord Jesus, occasionally we feel as emotionally empty as the Grand Canyon, disconnection, Disillusionment and disappointments add up and dam up until they can't be ignored. The world says to be vulnerable is to be human. But the Bible says to be vulnerable, careful, and wise is yours. And in these moments, Lord, we don't need cliches or chiding or cheerleading. We need you to be the living Christ when deadly perils lurk. Like Cain, who was angry with Abel or David glancing and then paring at Bathsheba, like Esau who was famished and smelled home cooking, ready to give it all up, or Asaph craving any story but his own. We too are capable of making choices we'll regret, hurting people we love, and dishonoring the God we adore. So Lord Jesus, you saved us from hell, now save us from ourselves. 
save us when we lapse or even leap into gospel amnesia, when we'll reach out for a moldy moon pie quicker than we'll feast on grace manna. We make King David's cry and choice our own. Oh my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So Jesus, thank you for being 10 times better at finding us than we are at wandering from you. So very amen we pray in your powerful and graceful name. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that every man and woman here will right now just feel the freedom to stop pretending. To be honest about where they're at and what they struggle with. What's robbing them of peace. Lord, what are they gripping on to the poles of the zip line with all of their might? Is it their marriage? Is it their children? Is it money or fame? Is it acceptance or grades? Is it pleasing mom and dad or trying to get people to be impressed with them? Lord, maybe there's a man or woman here or online that has been around church, been in church, but they don't know God of the church. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that from the youngest to the oldest of us, we will stop pretending like we don't need you, that we don't have questions, and that we're not easily distracted. But Lord, that we will have learned through this passage in John 14, like Thomas did and Philip did and Judas did, we don't have to be afraid because you're with us. We don't have to doubt because your word is true and trustworthy. And we've got a mission and a purpose and a plan and value because you've called us to go tell a world that Jesus lives and saves. And we know it because we see it and feel it and experience it every day. Go before us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.